0: Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Ape Books Podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today we're discussing two of the greatest leaders in Native American history, Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. They were both part of the Sioux Nation and they led the Native forces at the Battle of Little Bighorn where General Custer famously met his end. Our guest is Mark Lee Gardner, the author of a new book called The Earth is All That Lasts, Crazy Horse, Sitting Bull, and the Last Stand of the Great Sioux Nation. It's a biography of the two chiefs and also looks at the decline of the Sioux Nation. Mark is an authority on the American West. He's written extensively on the subject and holds an MA in American Studies from the University of Wyoming. Welcome, Mark.
1: Hey, thank you, Richard. Happy to be here.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I really enjoyed the book, um, but it is actually quite—I um, find it quite a sad read. Um, there's all sorts of numerous violent events, battles, skirmishes, violence from both sides, um, and it ultimately describes how this one particular tribe lost their lands. So at the end, I, I was quite quite sad about everything I'd read and everything I'd learned. Do you do? agree that it's quite a depressing chapter in american history
1: i i completely agree anytime a people loses their homeland it is extremely depressing and sad um but i also felt this was a story that needed to be told um that people need to be aware of and i would i would also add richard that um you know it is very sad and it's tragic but i hope that readers take away inspiration from these two leaders who um, never signed a treaty they didn't touch the pin they never recognized reservation boundaries and they were constantly fighting to preserve uh, their people's culture as well as as their homeland so i, I hope that that maybe is is one um, uh, aspect of the book that that uh we can take away that again is is inspirational uh so so the
0: two people Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. It sounds like they had quite different personalities. Can you describe each one of them to us?
1: Yes. Um, there's about a nine-year age difference. Sitting Bull is older, but um, Sitting Bull, uh, uh, and we know this from accounts of people that were close, is uh, you know his personal side. He, he was a bit of a practical joker. Um, he uh, was often laughing uh, in camp, in the villages um and uh kind of a, a at least within it with among his own people a very gregarious uh person um crazy horse on the other hand was was often described as remote or distant extremely modest he didn't like to speak in council meetings um and uh you know his essence even in his lifetime was little understood and it's still little understood today but um in fact i say that you know the only time he seemed to have sh- to have shown real emotion was on the battlefield uh, so they're different in those in those regards um and uh, and I think that makes them even more more interesting because they were allies as well and friends
0: now crazy horse you describe a, a number of the battles and the skirmishes and uh, the encounters that he was in and he was doing something that I'd never heard of before but it's called a bravery run can you describe what that is in a in a battle
1: yes that would be um and it wasn't just crazy horse that did these bravery runs but um he would gallop very close to the enemy lines especially uh you know the white soldiers or the way they refer to them as blue coats and long knives and draw their fire and really um race uh, so close that it was absolutely almost suicidal or dangerous um, but you're demonstrating how brave you are at the same time. You're demonstrating how powerful uh, your quote medicine or your war medicine is uh, that's been given you by uh, your holy man. Uh, so a bravery run is essentially risking your life uh, just to um, uh, ride close to the enemy and uh, survive. And uh, and Crazy Horse did that also for another purpose, not just to to demonstrate how brave he was, uh, but they often found, especially in the era when the uh, white soldiers are still using muzzleloading weapons, that if you can ride close and draw all their fire, then you have an opportunity with your men to quickly go in before the soldiers can reload or civilians, you know, whoever you happen to be encountering on the plane. So it had two purposes, again, uh, to demonstrate your, how brave you are, as well as to uh, perhaps give yourself an opportunity while the enemy is reloading. Right, right.
0: Now, um, the book is very detailed. And I was wondering how you did your research. You just mentioned before we started, it took you five years. Now, I could understand that the U.S. Army would document stuff and there, would, there was also like various newspapers. But how would the, the Native Americans would not have written stuff down?
1: So how, how did you pull all of this together? Well, I was very fortunate Um, there were uh, historians from an earlier time uh, that had been uh, researching this subject, uh, uh, what's often referred to as the, quote, Indian Wars and Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse, people like Stanley Vestal, Walter Camp, and they started working uh, in the 1920s and 30s, even earlier for some of these people. And for instance, uh, uh, Walter Campbell had the pen name Stanley Vestal, he uh, interviewed multiple, uh, numerous Lakotas who had seen Crazy Horse, knew Crazy Horse, were eyewitnesses, some of their best informants, uh, One Bull and White Bull, who were nephews of Sitting Bull. And what's just fantastic for a researcher and author is that, uh, particularly Stanley Vestal, uh, all his interview notebooks, and there there are dozens of these notebooks, were preserved, they're part of the collections of the University of Oklahoma, and they've actually been scanned and digitized so i could you know from my home computer could read these transcriptions of interviews with these old lakota warriors who were telling of their deeds and what happened to sitting bull and crazy horse in these various encounters another real boom to, to modern day historians is the number of newspaper websites online that have digitized 19th century newspapers there's literally millions of pages available and some of these warriors are actually being interviewed in the late 19th century and into the early 20th century. And before, it would be very difficult uh, in the era of microfilm to kind of search these papers and find these uh, unknown interviews. But today, uh, with character recognition, and you can search Little Bighorn, Rosebud, uh, various encounters, and I found a lot of previously unknown warrior accounts in the newspapers that just were hard to get to because uh, you'd have to go through literally frame by frame on a microfilm reader, hoping that there would be something there in, in dozens of newspapers across the country. Uh, but, but primarily to answer your question, my best resource uh, were these interviews that were recorded uh, in the early 20th century uh, by Walter Campbell, Marie Sandoz, Eleanor Hinman, uh, many, many others. And uh, those give the best insights into these two leaders. So did the interviews include warriors who fought at the Battle of Little Bighorn? Yes. There are many of those extant uh, today, um, and there's it's kind of a fascinating thing to talk about because uh, some scholars believe that uh, some of these old men were a little hesitant in uh, describing exactly what happened because they were still even 20, 30 years later were afraid of repercussions uh, that might happen if they admitted to killing a number of soldiers uh, or their actual their actual actions at. Uh, that little bighorn fight. But we do have several warrior accounts, and they're very, very useful for the study of the battle. So, that
0: battle is exceptional for so many reasons. And it seems that people are still fascinated with what happened today. Um, and it's, I mean, for the blue coats, the the white folks it was a loss it, yes it, like a, a huge
1: loss i mean w- why why are people so drawn to it well and i can go back i mean one of the early historic sites i remember visiting as a child my parents took us on a vacation we went to little bighorn and the fascination from from my childhood uh i think is re- reflective of uh, uh you know most visitors as a whole and Uh, You're just fascinated by how could um, more than 200 men be annihilated, uh, men that were led by one of the most famous generals of the American Civil War, the very flamboyant George Armstrong Custer, who was indeed a fighter uh, and a very uh, capable uh, military officer and, and, uh, uh, you know, in a battle. I mean, in the Civil War, uh, men loved Custer, and they love following him because he was so successful, victory after victory. So there's that question, uh, how did this happen? And then following up is that the other thing that's so um, intriguing is that there literally is no white man from that encounter on Last Ann Hill that lived to tell that side of the story. And so we're left wanting, we have the Indian accounts, of course, and those are very important. Um, but we still want to, you know, we'd like to know what kind of orders was Custer issuing? How did it turn into chaos? What was, what was his thinking? What, what made him decide to separate his regiment into three battalions? Um, all those things we'd love to have answers for, and we don't. And so we'll always wonder. And to me, that's what makes history so fun. Um, if we know everything about something in the past, that history is kind of dead. But when we still have these burning questions, that history is alive and and we can debate what Custer was thinking till the end of time. We'll never be able to answer it. Um, So I think that's what has its hold on the American consciousness. Um, And uh, and also Richard, in a way, um, I think it has to do with the ignorance uh, regarding the capabilities uh, of uh, Lakota warriors. Um, We don't give them credit for their fighting skills And so we think, well, how could these uh, Indians with these supposedly crude weapons defeat Custer? Well, they didn't have all crude weapons. They had bows and arrows as long as some repeating weapons. And they ended up taking some of the soldiers' guns and using them against them. But they also had a real incentive. Um, Custer was attacking their homes, their village, and they had family. They had women and children, sisters and mothers. And uh, so that was uh, a real incentive for them to defeat uh, the Long Knives who had come to attack them.
0: At the time, I seem to remember that it was a large gathering of uh, Sioux plus other uh, tribes. Yes. In a far, I mean, you describe as a village, but it sounds like there there was five thousand people there. Yes. Um, and Custer badly underestimated the size of the 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 problem he was going into. Yes. Um, is that right?
1: That is correct. Um, you know, we can look in hindsight and again, it's one of those things. What was his thinking in dividing uh, his regiment into those three fighting battalions? But it played right into the warriors hands because it allowed them to attack those different groups individually. Uh, and Custer, uh, by the time it was really too late, I mean, he's sending back messages to try to bring up the rest of his men and the ammunition and they've got their own problems to deal with and they never arrive and uh and that's how they uh, uh defeat uh, at least the the two, the 200 men that were uh, in Custer's battalion
0: okay so let's take a step back and think about why that that battle was happening um and i would say your book is about land rights it's a biography of of two leaders but they're trying to protect their land and that land is the black hills so um I've never been there what is it like why was it important to the white folks
1: why was it important to the Sioux well it's a very interesting kind of a geological uh formation it's I describe it in the book it's it's almost like its own little continent that rises out of the plains it's a small mountain range in western South Dakota part of uh, eastern Wyoming uh the highest mountain there is like I think it's 7200 feet it's Black Elk Peak um but this little mountain range uh, to the lakotas this was a a, a reserve for them a life sustaining reserve um but it was also sacred it was a it was a spiritual touchstone for them uh, one lakota described it the hills to them resembled uh, a woman uh, reclining and from her breast emanated um food you know the buffalo and spring fed waters and in the recesses of the hills They were protected from the winter storms. Uh, That's where the Lakotas got their lodge poles uh, for their uh, teepees or their lodges. Um, So it it was a place so sacred and and special for them. Um, And again, as a a reserve for the things they needed to live but also because it was was sacred. And Luther Standing Bear said uh, the Black Hills uh, for the Lakotas, it was like a child returning to its mother's arms um, it was just very special, very sacred to them. For the whites, it was full of gold. Um, and once gold was discovered there in the 1870s, there's a mad rush or influx of Euro-Americans and to land that had been uh, agreed upon was Lakota land in the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868. So we have this, uh, well, this um, uh, tug of war, essentially, or, or is the United States government going to uphold Uh, its treaty terms um, and stop these whites from coming in. And eventually the government decides, no, uh, we're going to try to force the uh, Lakotas to give up or to uh, cede over that land. And Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse refused to sign such a treaty. Other chiefs did. um, And in order to try to force this issue of the Black Hills, this is what led to that campaign that ended up with the Battle of the Bighorn in June of 1876 uh, President Grant's administration thought if we can if we can uh, uh, force those anti-treaty bands of Crazy Horse's people onto the reservation, it would be easier to get them to give up the Black Hills. So that's what brought about that military campaign. And of course, the defeat at Little Bighorn just intensified the efforts of the U.S. government to again force the either force them onto reservations, but they were also very willing to exterminate them if they did not go onto the reservations.
0: So you used the word exterminate by that time after the Battle of Little Bighorn. Was it genocide against the Sioux?
1: Um, I don't look at it as genocide. Um, Certainly General Sherman, he's quoted in the press and he said they will either go into the reservation or they will be exterminated. I like the word genocide. I really think it's more cultural genocide because once they're on the reservations, they're trying to erase everything about their traditional lifestyle and religion. Uh, They outlaw things like the Sundance. They send the kids to boarding schools and are not allowed to speak their language. Uh, They're dressing them in white man's clothes. And it was the thinking of the time that you had to destroy their traditions in order to, quote, civilize them. They thought the only way to save the Indians was to civilize them. And to me, that's cultural genocide. They were trying to erase or stamp out their culture.
0: So really the battles are just one, one way. There was the yes. destruction of their food source. Yes. The destruction of their
1: cultural faith, their, their faith, basically. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so even much deeper. And even, Richard, you'll remember from the book, the ghost dance was, again, uh, the Indian Bureau was completely against that. Um, they thought it was uh, uh, going back to paganism and um, everybody was afraid they were going to strike out and, and go on, you know, and kill settlers. And so they want the Indian borough, the U.S. government wanted to get rid of anything. It smacked of their previous traditions, and they wanted to make them white people, essentially farmers.
0: Um, I mean, it's desperately sad. One thing I noticed with the book was the um the drawings you include in the center of the book by Sitting Bull. Where did they come from?
1: Well, um after Sitting Bull finally was forced to surrender and he only surrendered because his people were starving. Um he was a quote, prisoner of war uh, at Fort Randall on the Missouri River. And while he was there, um he uh, uh, lots of well, a few people asked him uh, for some drawings that that showed. Uh, essentially his past life or his coups or deeds. Uh, Sitting Bull had been a a, a fierce warrior before he was a holy man and a uh, revered leader. And uh, warriors always kept track of their, quote, coups or their heroic deeds. And so he agreed to do, he did at least three sets of drawings while he was at Fort Randall. And uh, I have pictures from a couple of those sets that you mentioned you saw. Uh, And they are at different institutions. Uh, One sets at the Buffalo Bill Center of the West other sets at the National Anthropological Archives in Washington, D.C. But they're a wonderful resource because what's so great is that they literally match up with uh, known uh, primary accounts of Sitting Bull's life. Um, his drawings—I uh, uh, mean, individual encounters. He famously is uh, killed a Crow chief uh, as uh, in the 1850s, and he has a drawing of that. We know that happened. Um, He—I uh, mean. They they do depict actual events.
0: Right. So once he'd come onto a reservation, he seemed to have like a a level of celebrity which is pretty familiar to what celebrities go through today with he was in the newspapers and he had like fans who wanted to come and see him talk to
1: him. Absolutely. He got all kinds of, quote, fan mail. Um, And usually it was asking for an autograph, but sometimes they would write and say, you know, I'd like a pipe, you know, that you use. And um, according to one, there was a friend, a white friend of Sitting Bulls who who helped him answer his correspondence. And he said, um, you know, if they sent some money, well, he would try to, you know, get him an autograph or whatever. But he tended to ignore uh, the fan mail that didn't include, you know, some compensation for his time
0: right right so for the the two chiefs does anything today remain of their belongings any object associated with them
1: you know with crazy horse um there are very very few items um uh i mean you can count them on one hand if that many for instance uh, uh at the uh, agate fossil beds uh national monument they have a a sharpening stone with a little leather holder that apparently belonged to Crazy Horse. We also have at the Denver Art Museum, and this is a picture that's in the book, but we're talking about ledger art, and Crazy Horse gave to a journalist in 1877 a set of ledger drawings, um, and uh, the journalist asked him, well, does, does this depict you in battle? And Crazy Horse wouldn't say whether it was him or not, but that was something that we know came directly from Crazy Horse, and it's currently, as I said, at the Denver Art Museum. There's many other things that survive uh, that belong to uh, Sitting Bull, including the, the uh, Winchester that he surrendered uh, when he surrendered in 1881 at Fort Buford. Um, uh, there's, and he gave things to people, uh, including lots of those autographs that he sold. Um, there's a lot of those autographs, and, and he even autographed some photographs. Um, and that's another neat thing. We have lots of photographs of Sitting Bull that have survived no photographs of crazy horse uh, from what we can tell he just you know it doesn't match his personality he just uh, people that knew him said no they never knew him to have his photograph made and he was modest uh, like again distant and just that's not something that really was part of his makeup was to go in and, and have his portrait made so we have no authentic authentic photos of crazy horse
0: right so again it's those two contrasting personality types yes right so y- Five years reading up on these two uh, men. What would you ask them if you could meet them today?
1: You know, with uh, there are so many things I would ask with Crazy Horse. Um, and uh, just what, what he was trying to do um, and what he saw as the future for his people i mean could he see into the you know, what was his thinking about uh, by his fighting um because he made a conscious decision uh there were other chiefs that signed treaties he he made a conscious decision not to did he have any inkling of of what his path would result in for his people um by taking that course and being so uh, violently opposed to uh, accommodating what the white man wanted um with sitting bull Uh, it would, uh, there's one thing that I would ask him about. It might seem a little silly, but he had a relationship with a white woman who came to the reservation and she was an activist and was fighting for Lakota rights. And this was right before the ghost dance. And I would ask him, I would like to know a little bit more about that relationship. Um, it seems to be platonic. Um, and she said it was, but, uh, yeah, she lived in the home with him and, uh, It would be interesting to know a little bit more about, you know, what he thought of her and what she was trying to do for for him and his fellow Lakotas.
0: Um, One more question, if I may. Okay. But what started your interest in the Sioux?
1: Well, it's going to go back to um, my childhood. Uh, That was one of the first memories I have of visiting a historic battlefield. And at that time, of course, my fascination was focused completely on George Custer, uh, the uh, flamboyant uh, uh, glory seeker uh, of the U.S. Army. Um, But as I got older, I've done a lot of work for the National Park Service at various historic sites. And I became more intrigued with those who won the battle and what they were fighting for, uh, for their culture and their homeland. And to me, I saw an amazing story there and it's a tragic story Um, but as I said before I hope that their lives serve as inspiration and I think they probably do to a a great extent because their names have become iconic I mean uh, you can mention Sitting Bull or Crazy Horse I think anywhere in the world and people are going to know who those people are just as much as George Custer uh, today so um, I guess that's that's the reason uh, they're larger than life. And as a biographer, that's what you that's what you want to get into people yeah. that are larger than life and why they're iconic today.
0: So is your understanding of this at this time, this period in history, in American history changed since you first encountered it as a child?
1: Yes. Oh, it's changed.
0: You, you now see both well, sides.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I see both sides. And I think in the, this is the other, I mean, it's really nice that I think uh, it's not just me that's seeing both sides now. I mentioned um, Black Elk Peak, it's the highest peak in the Black Hills. Until recently, that was known as Harney Peak uh, for a soldier who had gone and attacked a village and killed women and children. And we're starting to recognize that um, maybe there's uh, parts of our history that uh, we shouldn't be putting on top of a mountain and that there's other people that are more deserving. It's looking at it from a different perspective, from a native perspective. So it's Black Elk Peak today. Um, You might've read in the news that the Secretary of the Interior, who is um, uh, a native uh, individual, um, uh, she has issued an order to to reexamine the names on various uh, geographical features, whether they're lakes or rivers, and getting rid of those that are pejorative So I think we're starting to see an awakening that there's a different perspective to our history that's just as important and valuable. um, And it's important to see that side. And like I said, with this book, I think as tragic as it is, that story needs to be known and to be told. And we can learn from it. And uh, we can remember those people, people like Crazy Horse and and Sitting Bull and He-Dog and Low Dog and Short Bull and all those individuals. Uh, Their names should be remembered and we should know what happened to them. Uh, it's important so over in the uk this area of uh,
0: american history i initially learned about it through westerns like on the tv Mm -hmm. and there was a a series of books called the ladybird history books so they're little Mm. small hardcover books that would cover like kings queens key events in history and they Mm. had a lot on american history and when I look, look, when I think about what they were saying now, I mean, th- these books were written, you know, 40, maybe 50 years ago. And mm-hmm. yeah, it didn't give the right impression. Almost no. As if it was sort of glamorous, a yeah. glamorous battle, right. heroic warriors. Well, without and- all the sadness that you show
1: of like their lands and their culture being taken away. And it was, it was a beautiful culture. And, and we should point out, Lakotas are still alive. They're not gone. They're still here. Um, and they are have a very strong cultural traditions that they've been able to preserve despite what was done to them. They preserve their traditional ways. Um, but yes, Richard, the thing is, is that uh, sometimes uh, revisionist is kind of a bad word in history. But, you know, we're always revising, you know, based on we get new information and, you know, Like I said, these accounts I found in the newspapers, there's nothing wrong with revising history as long as you're telling the truth. Um, You know, that's the whole goal is what actually happened. And um, so, yeah, uh, you know, if you're a good historian, you're constantly revising based on the information you have and what you find out that's new. And amazingly enough, in 2022, I actually found new information on Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull. It's out there. You just have to really be persistent and dig deep.
0: Mm -hmm. All right. Okay, Mark, Uh, our last question, which we ask to all our guests, that is what book or books
1: are you currently reading? Oh, excellent. Well, I've got a couple. Uh, One of uh, one that it's an excellent biography. It's called Literary Alchemist, The Writing Life of Evan S. Connell by Steve Paul. And are you familiar with the works of Evan S. Connell? He wrote Mr. Quinn. Yeah, fiction. He wrote Mrs. Bridge, but his biggest book was called Son of the Morning Star, and it was about George Custer and the Battle of the Little Bighorn, and I found the chapter fascinating on how he came to write that. It was a huge bestseller. It came out in the 1980s. And then the other book I'm reading is actually a biography of Wyatt Earp by Stuart Lake, which was published in 1931, because my next book is a dual biography of Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday and their relationship. Uh, so I'm kind of reading the, the myth, mythological touchstone uh, where the legend of Wyatt Earp began. Right. That sounds
0: fun. Um, yeah,
1: it is fun. Yeah.
0: I seem to remember Doc Holliday suffered from tuberculosis, wasn't it?
1: Yes, he was. He was a tubercular. Yes, he suffered. From... And and, you know, he they also had two very different personalities as well. Um, but that's the fascination. You know, they were close. We know they were friends um but they were odd ducks uh very different from each other and so that's what i want uh, to explore with them and i think a lot of people well you know val kilmer has made doc holiday famous with the movie tombstone and we know they were friends but we don't really know why they were friends uh, and what kind of held them together
0: yeah years ago when i was driving around the west i did go to the ok corral oh nice and i was i was a little overwhelmed <laughs>
1: yeah that's true yeah well yeah i mean that's that's what legend does right um i can remember uh uh well uh you know i always think that maybe it's better that we don't have a photograph of crazy horse because what if he doesn't really live up in the photo to uh what we imagine when we read about him and and what a great warrior he was i mean you want to think of some guy that's seven feet tall or whatever, and Uh, Maybe if we actually could see his face, it might not match up in our imagination. To me, it adds to his mystique that we don't have a photograph of him. So maybe that's better that way.
0: Yeah, maybe it is. All right. That's all we have time for today. Um, Thank you to Mark Lee Gardner for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Richard. I really enjoyed our talk.
0: Thank you. Mark Lee Gardner is the author of a new book called The Earth is All That Lasts. Crazy Horse, Sitting Bull, and The Last Stand of the Great Sioux Nation. My name is Richard Davis, and you've been listening to an ABE Books podcast, and we'll see you all again soon.